Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Anne Baring, who's a former Jungian analyst and author of The Myth of the Goddess, The Mystic Vision, The Divine Feminine, and her final book, which is a summation of her teachings, The Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul. In this conversation, we touch on many subjects that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Things like the role of the masculine and feminine archetypes in our modern society, what a model of healthy masculinity looks like and how to nurture it in young men and boys, and what we can do as people who are waking up to the current state of social and ecological crisis to affect positive change in our own families, our communities, and the wider world. Her message and perspective resonate with me very deeply, and I hope that people will take a break from the male authorities currently dominating the quote-unquote intellectual dark web and take some time to listen to the perspective of a true wise woman and elder. If you value these kind of conversations and would like to show your support, there are a few ways that you can help. The simplest is to leave a positive review on iTunes, which will help other people find this podcast. You could also share it with the people in your social network. And another way is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching. Membership starts at just $5 a month and supporters gain access to the dozens of yoga practice resources that I've been developing over the past few years. There are hours of vinyasa yoga sequences, breathwork, chanting, and guided meditations to help you develop a life-supporting and life-enriching home practice. If you have any suggestions for future guests on the Medicine Path podcast, please send me an email at medicinepathyoga at gmail.com or drop me a line on social media. I'm particularly interested in helping to amplify the voices of women, 
indigenous teachers, and people of color who I feel are greatly underrepresented in the current conversations about spirituality and consciousness. Well, that's all for now, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy this meeting with Anne Baring on The Medicine Path. I've got my little dog here, Sweetie. She's beside me, so uh, you might hear her snoring away at some point. What kind of a dog? She's a little Boston Terrier now in her elder years. Oh, right. Okay, nice. So she uh, she never wants to be too far away from me. So I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> so I was hoping just to get a little bit of your uh, personal history to introduce yourself to my listeners. Okay, I'm quite an old lady, so there's a lot of personal. <laughs> well, is that I'm um, three quarters American. My mother was American, and my father's mother was American. And I was brought up in England and in America during the war. Um, I went to Oxford University, where I studied history, <clears throat> medieval history. Then I went on a great voyage to the to the east, to India and the Far East, in my twenties. And I started to write when I came back. And then um, I became a dress designer and had a shop for 12 years in a very uh, fashionable part of London. In those days, women wore long evening dresses a lot. And so I used to make evening dresses, which was wonderful. And with all the materials that I'd seen in India, I went absolutely wild creating these beautiful evening dresses. And then um, because I had suffered from depression for quite some years, I went into analysis, a Jungian analysis, and I had um, a long analysis with a man and then another one with a woman. And during the course of the one with a woman, I became a Jungian analyst because there's a seven-year training. You have to do two years preliminary analysis before you're accepted for the training. So that all took up quite a bit of time. And then I practiced as an analyst for about 20 years. And then I... When I was doing my training, I met this a wonderful woman called Jules Cashford, and we wrote a book together called The Myth of the Goddess, Evolution of an Image, which came out in about 1991, a long time ago. And that showed me that I really loved writing, and I had a lot to write about because I had all the historical background from my uh, university days. Then I had all the Jungian uh, background into the psyche, and I wanted to bring them together and I wanted to look at the world situation from the point of view of a Jungian analyst. And that's what my latest book, The Dream of the Cosmos, is about. It's about what we've lost and what we need to recover. And it's really a summary of my life quest. And it's also an invitation to anyone who reads it to change their consciousness. I think that's yeah. a brief summary of, of <laughs> how I've come to be where I am. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thanks. Um, and I, that's something I wanted to get to is the current focus of your work, which seems to be this call to humanity to awaken. And I was wondering if you could talk about what awakening means to you and why you think this message is so important right now. Awakening means changing our beliefs, changing our habits of behavior, and waking up to the very real danger that we're in. I think I will just read you something that I read three days ago from Sir David Attenborough because it's so important and very relevant. He said, the perils facing this planet are far, far greater than they have ever been in the entire history, or at least since the end of the dinosaurs, certainly for the last few million years. There's nothing to compare with the perils we are facing, not only in the scale, but in the speed at which they are happening and of course, we now know that we are responsible for a lot of these changes that are taking place. So that really is the message we need to hear. But that's only one message, because the reason 
we're in the mess we're in now, why we've come to treat nature and the planet the way we have, is because we're completely disconnected from the deeper dimension, disconnected from the deeper dimension of the soul that we know nothing about, we don't even know it exists. And it's really, that is the dual problem facing us, how to realize the danger we're in from climate change and how to change our consciousness so that we stop all this ridiculous nonsense of wars and preparation for wars. I've just been rewriting a chapter in my book, bringing it up to date, which is called uh, War as the Rape of the Soul. And we can see how nations, the five nuclear nations or the nine nuclear nations, are still preparing for war as if it was something that was going to come forever in the future, which is just absurd. I mean, it's, it's insane. But they don't know it's insane because they're in a habit of thinking, which has gone on for some 4,000 years. They don't realize what they're doing. And they don't realize that what they're doing is evil. And really, um, it's evil because it's destroying the possibility of life on the planet if these things were used. Now, they have been used, as we know, in Hiroshima and um, Nagasaki. But now the weapons they have are so much more powerful, the hydrogen bombs they have, more more powerful than what the bombs that were used then. So it's unthinkable that we could use any of these weapons. And yet there are um, some 15,000 or 16,000 of them on the planet now, divided mainly between Russia and the US, but also scattered among the other nations, the nine nuclear powers as well. So that is my concern, and I've just been rewriting, as I said, this chapter on war, and it's giving all the statistics since the five years since I wrote the book, which are now up to date. And it just makes me in a state of utter disbelief that our politicians can just be arguing, like a lot of ferrets in the sack, we call it here in England, Mm. uh, when the people are just (laughs) fighting with each other because they don't know... They're polarized and they don't understand how to meet in the middle and how to um, make concessions to each other that would help them to agree. And this is the state, I don't know if it's the state with you in Canada, but it's certainly the state in in the United States and it certainly is here in in the UK. Mm -hmm. So having said all that, would you like to ask me any more? Yeah, well... It's interesting because, you know, I really appreciate that the message uh, from Attenborough. At the same time, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Steven Pinker, who's quite a prominent secularist. Yes, I read one and, of his books. Yeah. So this year he released a TED Talk that has one million and a half views where he asserts that humanity is doing better than ever that there's less war, poverty, and pollution than there's ever been in history. And, you know, he backs it up with uh, a lot of charts and statistics. So I'm wondering, like, how do you respond to that uh, quite vocal message that seems to be at odds with the message that you're promoting? I think he's completely out of touch with what's actually happening with the nine nuclear nations and this continual preparation for war. He's completely unaware that America is continually, um, as it were, looking upon Russia as the next enemy. And after that, China, that's the stance of the United States. And I think he's just naive, frankly. And he's got the typical stance of the intellectual who is not in touch with his soul, who is out of touch with his feeling values, and who can't really feel the distress of what's already going on in the world. Look at Syria. Mm-hmm. Look at Iraq, look at Iran, uh, look at Turkey, the tyrant there coming up. I think he's completely, as I say, naive and ignorant. Yeah, I mean, when I watched that TED Talk, it seemed to me like he seemed actually quite glib about the whole situation. And he seemed to be speaking from a place of real uh, privilege and speaking to an audience of of privilege as well. And I think you're right. I think they're not able to see things from another perspective, you know, the people who are suffering from all these things that are supposedly getting better. Yeah, exactly. It's true that the the, the West, the standard of living in the developed countries is incredible. It has been going up steadily since 1945. It's reached a very high standard uh, through our technology and our 
um, <clears throat> and through the internet now, which is an incredible advantage. But at the same time, there's things going on under the surface, which and obviously he is either not aware of or doesn't think of sufficient validity to bring them into his theory. So he's not looking at the suffering. He's not looking at the poverty in Africa, for instance. He's not looking at the what's being done to the tar sands in, um, I think, is it Canada or Alaska? Extracting yeah, yeah. oil and really raping the earth. And he's completely ignorant of the indigenous people's point of view who are saying, wake up and hurry up and wake up. Because mm -hmm. if you don't, um, we've had it as a species. So he's completely discounting or is ignorant of that whole aspect of the voice of the indigenous people. And whether you look at those in Australia or North America or Canada or Colombia and South America or the Amazon area, they're all saying the same thing. Hmm. And um, I'm aware of that because I follow what they say and I, I follow the talks of what happened in Standing Rock and that whole area there. I follow what's happening in the tar, sand area, tar sands area, which the, the earth looks horrific when you look at what's happened there, the, the um, extraction of oil, what it actually does to the earth. And I feel very angry speaking on behalf of the earth, if you like, um, that this is happening and that people are so incredibly unconscious, the men who are directing all this, because it's mainly men. I don't demonize men, but they are responsible for this. And they're completely unconscious of the amorality of what they're doing and the harm that they're doing to the whole ecological system of the planet. Mm -hmm. So that's my position. It's very clear now. It's getting clearer all the time. I'm able to speak now with more authority because I know my facts and um, I know the peril that we're in and I know all the entertainment um, that's going on, distracting people from really waking up and focusing on what they need to do. It doesn't mean to say that they need to drink less water or eat less food, but they need to look at what their governments are doing and challenge them to uh, change their position. And I, I, that all, I explained that in chapter 10 of my book, which was about the feminine and the absence of the feminine in the last 4,000 years and why this has got us into the predicament we're in now. By the feminine, I don't mean women, I mean the soul, uh, of which all of us are part. So I'm not speaking about women specifically, but about the whole realm or um, dimension of the soul and about the fact that we know nothing about it. We don't know that we're in it. <laughs> we don't know that we're connected through it. Um, and we, look, we need to look at quantum physics and, and listen to what quantum physics is telling us about the fact that we're all connected. That's mm -hmm. another whole um, thing we could talk about. Well, what, that touches on something I wanted to ask you about. In one of your online talks, you, you speak about the spirit and the soul as being separate. And I'm wondering if you could just define those terms for us and help to explain how they exist for us. Well, in relation to the individual person, that's you and I, we have three levels, really. We have the ego consciousness level, we have the soul consciousness level, and we have the spirit, which is the ground of all. The soul, as it were, is contained in the spirit, and the, the, the um, conscious mind or ego mind is contained in the soul, but it doesn't know it. <laughs> So we have these three levels and we're not really aware of how they're connected to each other or how we could um, activate the connection so that we're not only stuck in the ego consciousness level, so that we become aware of the values that go with the deeper level and serve, ultimately serve the spirit, which is what is holding the whole planet in its embrace, if you like, and the whole universe in its embrace. Um, we have to expand our image of God to include the whole universe instead of just that father figure stuck up in heaven somewhere. Um, we have to change or grow into a new concept of God or spirit and see spirit as the whole, really, the whole universe and as the um, active, active mind or the active energy in the whole universe. That's a big step to make from our conventional religious beliefs. Yeah. So how can uh, each individual start to 
get in touch with their own soul and the spirit in a practical way? In a practical way, they need to connect with their heart. They need to move from their mind to their heart down here in their chest. They need to sit for a while every day, not very long, maybe 10 minutes, just connecting with the heart and asking, please, will you speak to me, my soul, and how can I serve you better? What can I do? And then pay attention to the little intuitions or thoughts that come in. Um, for instance, how can I look after my dog better, like your dog? How can I look after my children better? How can I get on better with my husband or my partner, my wife? How can I serve my community? And ultimately, how can I serve the planet? So those are the sort of questions to ask oneself as one moves from the mind to the heart. One needs the mind, if you like, to manifest the feelings of the heart. But the soul is connected with the whole realm of feeling. And that's why the heart is so important, much more than the rational intellect of the mind, important as that is, but it's not the whole. Mm. What, what's a way that someone can start to engage with the ground of being, the spirit, as you call it? Just recognize that it exists, that it's quite different from the concept of God that we've been taught, that includes the whole of life, including all of us, all the animals on the planet, all the life on the planet. So it's not a kind of separation between us and God or us and spirit. We are part of spirit and we need to move from worshipping spirit to serving spirit, which is quite a different emphasis. And there are many ways that you can help life by serving some aspect of it, like the food you give to your dog every day, that's serving life. It's simple acts like that you can start with, and then gradually you'll probably be led to do something in a wider dimension. Hmm. That, that reminds me of um, an experience I had in Peru last year in a shamanic ceremony where I received the very strong message and very clear message that the role of the masculine was to serve and protect the feminine. And would you see that as being in line with what you're talking about here in terms of serving life? Yes, I mean, it's serving the values of the feminine, not selling, uh, serving woman. I mustn't make that mistake, but it's serving the values of caring and looking after the planet. And those are the feminine values that have been completely neglected or discarded in the emphasis of, of the um, desire for power and desire for domination over nature. That's been the huge mistake we've made, this idea of dominance. And we have to move from dominance to caring. That's a big step. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of discussion in the culture currently about the subject of divine femininity and toxic masculinity. And I find these conversations are very polarizing. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little about the role of the masculine and the feminine and how they relate to the male and female sexes. Well, <laughs> that's a very big question. <laughs> but I look at it in terms of, of the Taoist uh, image of yin and yang, that they are complementary to each other. But what's happened is they've become rivals to each other. And that's where the polarization comes in. If people could realize that women have certain um, gifts and long, long programming of caring for life and the way they looked after their children, and men have long, long programming of caring for the community and protecting the community. These are different patterns of behavior which are deeply imprinted in us. But in the last hundred years, women in um, wanting to be recognized really and in beginning with wanting the vote that's how it all started a hundred years ago they wanted to have access to the same um, activities as men they wanted to be able to have access to the law the legal profession to the go to university to um, have access to politics to all sorts of things that men have done for centuries women wanted to do too and in wanting to do that and becoming educated in exactly the same way as men are educated in the same schools, the same uh, syllabus and curriculum, they've taken on the masculine way of thinking and doing things. And they've neglected and forgotten their value, their true um, long programming of millions of years of caring for life. First of all, as a mammal, and then as a human. 
So it's very complicated and people get stuck in these arguments which lead nowhere and which just lead you to polarize more and more and then each one gets more and more angry with the opposite gender, says, well, it's all your fault and, <laughs> and it gets nowhere at all. So somebody needs to speak up and say, just shut up, all of you, and pay attention to your um, evolutionary programming and ask, where are my gifts most able to be expressed? And the masculine element is really helping women to express their gifts now, to manifest their gifts. That's what a, a man can do, either as a partner or in a business relationship or in a spiritual connection um, men are programmed to protect and they can do that in this uh, new gender relationship protect women to help them to articulate the longing they have to be accepted in society as equals but also as i say as complementary complementaries rather than rivals so you can be equal but you don't have to be a rival equal in value but not um, competing with each other for the best position of power in the world because then you just follow the masculine thing as it's been which has been all about um, power and fame success wealth if women follow those values they'll be lost they'll lose the true gift that they have of carrying the soul values which they've done for centuries while men have gone out and battled in the world and, and God knows how many billions of men have been sacrificed in war, women have had to witness all this. They've witnessed the sacrifice without being able to do anything about it. And they've seen their children killed and their daughters raped and they haven't had the voice to protest. And that's why I'm so pleased with my education and my life path that I have now got the voice to actually protest against this um, iniquitous idea of dominating the earth and the idea of dominance altogether. So have I said enough, do you think, to mm -hmm. clarify a bit? Yeah, I love what uh, Marion Woodman says, that we've all suffered under the patriarchy, that it's not been just women who have suffered under that, but also men. And I'm wondering if you could help us paint a picture of what healthy masculinity might look like. Well, healthy masculine. I have a grandson of 23, and he is the embodiment of healthy masculinity because mm. he's been brought up partly by his grandparents. So he's been given the values of caring for life. He's a farmer now, so he's looking after the earth as best he can. I don't fill him with my ideas because he's much too young to take them in. He has to find his own path. But I think it would be bringing up a, um, a young boy to respect his feelings, to listen to his feelings. Usually boys don't get listened to, little boys, because they're too busy um, competing with their peers to really be aware that they have such a thing as feelings. They just get on with life. But as they grow up, you can introduce ideas to them of, um, do you think this is a good idea, the way people are behaving towards animals or towards the earth, ask them questions and possibly send them somewhere for a brief spell where they can connect with something to do with the indigenous peoples. That's what I would do. I had um, several sons. I couldn't do it from England, but you could do it in Canada or America. Mm -hmm. And I would um, ask that, you know, bring the boys to the house, have boys in and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What values are you developing in yourself that could help the world? Ask them questions. Do you think it's important for us as people of European descent to look into and try to recover some of our own um, nature-based spiritual practices and understandings? Or is it more, or is it even appropriate that we look to living shamanic cultures for some guidance in traditions that have been unbroken? I think it's very important if we live anywhere near um, a shamanic group that we either listen to them or listen to the talks. There's some wonderful talks given by somebody called Chief Phil Lane in, in America or Chief Arvo, um, and you can look them up on Google and listen to them and take those as a sort of template 
of what we need to be doing. That would, and particularly Chief Phil Lane has given a whole template of how we need to change our behaviour. And one could copy that and listen to them. Mm. I would certainly introduce young men to that. Mm -hmm. And also it's, it's confusing now for young men growing up because of all this tension between men and women and because the uh, <clears throat> debate in Canada has been going on as it has been in, in Europe as well on what role men and women are supposed to play in this world. And I think that the whole realm of soul has been neglected and also the realm of the planet has been neglected, except by a few people all over the world who are working and doing their best to, to help the planet, like David Attenborough, for instance. Mm -hmm. Something else that's happening in our culture now is what seems to be, to be a growing rise of uh, transgenderism and gender fluidity. And I'm wondering what you think this might mean for the traditional notions of the masculine and feminine? Well, there's a lot going on now, but I think a lot of the emphasis on gender change is actually a displacement of the need for a change of consciousness. But because we don't know anything about the need to change the consciousness or how to do it, it gets, as it were, literalized at the physical level, at the sexual level. And I think there may have always been transgender people, but there seem to be a great many more now than there ever have been in the past. Maybe they had to keep quiet because of persecution. But the idea of not wanting to be the gender that you're born in has become a fashion. And I think it's quite dangerous, particularly for young children. I don't think that idea should enter into uh, schools or any educational system until people are in their teens because when they're five, six, seven, 10, 11, 12, they're much too young to know what the whole thing means. And also it's not good to change the hormones of the body when they're so young. They should wait till they're adult and then change if they want to. And it may be also that reincarnation may come in because they may have been the other gender in a previous life, a very recent life. And they may feel that they're more woman than man or man than woman, and that therefore they need to change into what they feel they are but they need to pause and think carefully, could this be a reincarnation um, experience? Could it be that I'm not ready yet to make this decision? What is it going to do to my body? Because there again, the body is a precious vehicle of the soul. And to just treat it as something that you can manipulate according to your will, I don't think is right. Do you think it's uh, a matter of there not being a place for for the other in our Western society, as there have been in many indigenous societies over the millennia, that the other was actually seen as being a, uh, a special person, uh, someone to be honored, maybe given a special place in the society, and that we don't have a place for uh, people who are not so binary, let's just say that, who don't easily fit into the category of man or woman, that we don't have a place for them, and that creates this internal tension with people. That they have to be one or the other, you mean? Yeah, and that, that maybe is causing people to want to change their bodies to conform to their mental idea of themselves. It could be, but I don't think that usually the human nature... Um, is frightened of what is different and always has been. The stranger is the enemy, so to speak, and that's still dominating our politics today. And I think that, um, well, as you know, gay, um, homosexual men and women were not accepted in older societies. They were persecuted and killed very often, just the way um, ISIS has been killing them in, in this particular present world. So. It may, I think the whole thing is in flux now. Because we need to change, everything is thrown up. Everything is put into the um, cauldron, as it were. And it's throwing up these different um, manifestations of people's unease or people's discontent with themselves or people's worrying about whether they're acceptable to others. I mean, there are all sorts of um, things that are coming into this. And I think we, we need a much deeper, deeper debate about it all and whether the whole idea of manipulating the body according to our will 
isn't part of the whole technological bias of our civilization, that we can do anything we want as long as we have the means to do it. And I think it's, it has great dangers, that idea, as well as positive sides. So we have to weigh up what is happening and try and understand our psyche in greater depth than we're doing at the moment. We're, at the moment, we're only looking on the surface, we're not looking at what the causal realm is of all this unrest and, and unease and discontent with oneself. Hmm. Well, I would say that it seems like individual spiritual practices like meditation and yoga are always gaining in popularity. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll just say that I'm not sure that they always go so deep as they get more popular, but things actually seem to be getting worse for us as a whole. And so why do you think this is? Why do you think that that rise in popularity of things like meditation and yoga isn't having the uh, positive effect on the wider community? Or I would say even on the individual level, because people are seemingly uh, as unhappy as they've ever been. Yes, there's more depression in society now. There's, in the UK, there were 68 million um, prescriptions for prescription to, uh, for, for depression two years ago. And many of those prescriptions are for adolescents. So if the UK is typical, and I think it probably is, this also happens in, in the America on a huge scale and probably Canada also. So why are people depressed? That's the great question that I've answered in my own life because I had depression until I understood that I was disconnected from the soul. I was disconnected from my deeper feelings and I was living life only on the surface. Meditation can take you so far, but if you're not aware of what you're meditating to connect with, then you only have the technique. You don't have the depth of connection. And this is where dreams come in too, because obviously being a Jungian, I'm very interested in dreams. And dreams can be a guide to this realm of the soul if we understood more about them and paid more attention. But people just go to the doctor and say, I'm depressed, what can you do? And the doctor gives out the prescription for antidepressant or bipolar pills or whatever it may be. But nobody has the time, they're not enough psychotherapists and nobody can pay for them anyway <laughs> to really get to the depth of where the depression is coming from. So I would say to an adolescent who says, I feel suicidal, I don't know why I feel this way, but I don't want to go on living. Why have you no sense of your own value and the value of your life? Why do you only look upon, the, say, the social media as the focus of your life? Where is the missing element that could give meaning to your life? So that's the sort of thing I would say to them. I wish I could help thousands and millions of people with this because I know that um, this comes from being disconnected to the environment, which is also part of soul, disconnected from spirit, not as God, but as the, the beingness of life, if you like, and disconnected from the sense of why am I on this planet? Why am I here on the planet? What is it that I've been put here to do by coming into this incarnation? Where have I got the help that I need to find what I need to do? And what I need to do is what gives me happiness and fulfillment in some form of service. It could be anything. As I say, it can be feeding your dog his daily food. It can be looking after people in, in hospitals. It can be looking after the planet in some way. I mean, there are a thousand different ways in which one can serve and feel happy in that service and fulfilled. But if, you just, if your aim in life is just to be famous on Facebook or to make a pile of money and then retire and, or to be, um, I don't know what, reach the top of the ladder, you're never going to be fulfilled. You're always going to have a missing void inside you. And eventually that void will express itself as depression and possibly even psychosis. Because you could say we're living in a psychotic society. We're, we're not living in a normal society at all. There's so much imbalance everywhere from government down to the schools and the way um, education is programmed only on the intellect, not to do with the arts, poetry, art, 
expression of feeling. There's nothing in schools which can give school uh, children that connection with their feeling and their heart, which then they would, as they grow up, they would be developing that and, and trusting it. But if they're just told they have to pass exams all the time, and if they don't pass exams, they'll never get to university, and if they don't get to university, they won't get a job, that is negative programming, which kills the soul, and it kills the heart. And that's why there is so much depression, I think, in our society, and so much real sickness, not only depression, but actual mm -hmm. psychosis. Would you say that um, anxiety and things like addiction have the same root cause as depression, that it's a Absolutely. disconnection from the soul aspect? Absolutely. It's not knowing why one is here or that one has any value in life. One may be the poorest person in life in the most tragic circumstances, but one has the utmost value. And that's something that people just don't realize. They're not taught that from the beginning. And why might it manifest differently in people, in some people as anxiety and some people as depression and some people fluctuating those two extremes? I think that um, you have to probably take the individual and see where it traces back to childhood, programming in childhood. It could be indoctrination through very religious parents or no religion at all through very scientific, technologically minded parents who may, be, may have or may not have the values that the child needs. So you have to look at the childhood and the programming in school and the programming in society, the emphasis on fame and riches and power, and no emphasis whatsoever on the feeling values or on the creative expression of the feeling values right from school onwards. So I think that, I mean, there are a lot of people who are extremely healthy and well-balanced, but there are many more people now, I think, who are um, becoming addicted to drugs, opioids. Um, it's tragic, really. They throw their lives away because they don't know that they're of any value. So helping children know of their intrinsic value and helping them to uncover their gifts is maybe one of the more important things we could do. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. As soon as possible. Yeah. And I'm, so, sorry, go ahead. I was just wondering um, if you are familiar with Jordan Peterson. I've, yes, I've listened to one of his talks. I think he's a, a, <laughs> he's a brilliant man. He suffers from depression as well, mm -hmm. uh, which may, people may not know. But I think he's, he's really cutting through the jargon and the garbage that's around. And I like that. I like his precision. I like his intellect and, and uh, what he's pointing out. I don't know a great deal about him because I haven't read his book. I've only watched this couple of programs. One of them, he was in dialogue with a, a great philosopher in our country um, who was called, um, oh Lord, where is his book? I haven't got it. Um, Ian McGilchrist, hmm. who is uh, really, has written a marvelous book called The Master and His Emissary which is about the split between the right and the left hemispheres of the brain and how the left hemisphere of the brain has really taken hold of the culture and how this is extremely dangerous and is leading us to further and further problems because we're not balanced with the right hemispheric consciousness. That's something again to do with children's uh, upbringing. We're putting all the emphasis on the left hemisphere on the sequential um, one thing following another, so to speak rather than on the imagination. And if you block off the imagination in childhood, it turns bad or negative, if you like, and then begins to persecute you with all this anxiety and depression because one is not in balance. So one of the main functions really of education is to keep the right and the left hemispheres in balance, or it should be, but it isn't at the moment. But anyway, uh, to go back to, what's his name again? Mm -hmm. jo Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. I think, I'm not quite sure what he's trying to do. I know that he's irritated a lot of people, but I think that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing, as I say, the pot needs stirring and everything's in the cauldron and he's put in another element. And I like his courage and I like his determination to um, speak out about what he feels is important. Mm. Well, I guess one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about this is that I see, it seems especially now in the current culture, 
in the realm of uh, intellectualism, spiritualism, that, that it still seems to be dominated by middle-aged men. And I'm wondering why I don't see as many women of that age speaking about these issues uh, in a way that is um, as prominent. Well, I think it's partly, I mean, I look at my own life and how long it's taken me to be able to speak out with any clarity and with the what I want to speak out about. I mean, take Marion Woodman. She worked all her life to bring these different ways of thinking into her culture. But I don't know how much she's ha influence she's had beyond the small circle of people who followed her work. You know, it just hasn't reached the whole of Canada, I shouldn't think. Mm -hmm. Hasn't penetrated the political realm. And you take um, somebody like, um, oh dear, what's that what, Canadian woman who's written so many books? Oh, can't remember her name. She's very well known. Joyce Carol Oates? No, no. Um, Atwood? No, well, Atwood is actually another one who is speaking out. She's a remarkable woman. Mm -hmm. And I would certainly follow her, what she's saying. But I think that women are either in academia where they don't tend to speak out, they write their books and their papers, but they're not really involved in, in this whole um, changing consciousness thing. I don't think that it, there may not be enough women who are interested or enough women who have got the qualifications to speak out now, but Margaret Ratwood is certainly one of them. Well, it's something I've been discussing with my wife. Um, as I've started to do this podcast, I've been asked by some women uh, privately if I could get more women on my podcast because female voices are underrepresented in these areas. And my response has been that I've been asking women but it's been the men who have followed through. And I was talking to my wife about this, trying to understand why that might be. Mm. And, I, and I wondered if it had something to do with a kind of fundamental difference in the male and female psyche, the male being more, um, more penetrating, more active, wanting to be seen in the world, maybe more than women. And that, so they're just driving more towards, uh, gaining popularity, notoriety in the wider culture. And maybe women don't have that same drive. I don't know. I don't think they have that drive. And I think it is a male thing because men have been for thousands and thousands of years. They've been in the marketplace. They've been in, in the midst of society. They've created the laws. They've formed the governments. They've formed the religions. They've written the books. Um, mm -hmm. You know, women didn't have the chance because they weren't had no access to education until very recently, 150 years ago, something like that. So I think that also there's a fear in women. When you have to look back into the persecution of women um, in, in Europe, for instance, and in America too, if they dare to speak out in the Christian religious context, they were at risk of being burnt at the stake if they were different in any way. So there's a diffidence among women. Is it safe to speak out? There's a feeling. Will I be accepted? Will I be liked? Will I be loved? Will I be able to say what I want without being murdered. <laughs> I mean, look at the Taliban, what they do to women still. Um, or in, in India. Or in India, yeah. I mean, India is supposed to be an advanced culture, but it's, it's thousands mm -hmm. of years behind. And Yeah, it, the Indians would say it's the most advanced culture. Well, it isn't. It, it, spiritually, it was, but it hasn't taken it through into the marketplace. It hasn't treated the people, that, particularly the poor people and the what they call the untouchables, it's treated them as something like pariahs. And as you said, you know, somebody who is, has to be kept down and treated in an abominable way. And women as well are in, the, are in that category of being helpless in the hands of men. And they have to do what they're told. And if they don't, they're burnt alive or killed or murdered or raped. I mean, it's disgraceful that Modi hasn't tackled this in a really um, way that can make some difference. I have a great friend living in India, a woman, and she writes all the time saying that this is the most appalling state. She sees it all the time, even in an ashram, if you please, with rape going on. Hmm. So there's a, this is where we're unconscious. Can you see what I mean now by unconscious? That we're unconscious of the cruelty that we are still acting 
through and the way we treat different groups of people. First of all, it was um, the, the blacks or the oriental people or the indigenous people. And now it's still existing in the way that women are treated all over the world because they've been subject to men for at least four or 5,000 years. And this is a habit that's extremely difficult to break and to realize that they are part of the sacred. I haven't spoken about this and I'd like to speak about this, that the whole of life is sacred. The life of the planet is sacred and all the people on it are part of that sacredness. So to treat women the way they're being treated in India is actually to go against the law of life. It's to uh, act in an evil and destructive and negative way towards an aspect of life that is as sacred as the men are. And that hasn't been realized. And that is something that needs to be a big, huge step in human consciousness. Hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so what do you think we as individuals who are waking up to what's going on, what can we do to affect change on a larger scale? Well, I think you're doing it through your podcast. You're reaching people. I don't know how many people tune into your podcast, but that's what you are doing. And it's very helpful. And you've invited me to speak and I can speak. So that's what I can do. I can, mm -hmm. um, I've given, done some videos recently in which I've said that um, we have to understand that we're not fallen, sinful beings. We are part of the divinity of life, all of us and all animals and everything on the planet. So that's the change that I'm speaking about now, and you can bring it out to people by passing it on to your group and whatever way you can. And your wife can do it in the way, have you got children? No. Not yet, no. Okay, well, she will probably join in with whatever you're doing and help you. And that would be her way of contributing. Or maybe she has her own particular way of um, acting in the world, which is of great value. She definitely does. She's, um, she's a herbalist and astrologer. And it's something that uh, over the past few years, we've tried to do more and more is to teach together. Because something I've been saying for the past few years is that the time of the lone male guru is over. Oh, and that over. Yeah. It, it's really important for, uh, for couples to start to present together, to be on the same stage, to be offering things and to kind of model that cooperation between masculine and feminine or male, female. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's lovely and wonderful to hear you say that because that is precisely what I think needs to happen, that men and women have to come together to work together to do this and, and can have a vision together, so to speak, which they bring into being, whatever it might be. And instead of um, women staying silent in the home and men going out into the world, they can go out into the world together now and also be together in the home, um, which is very advantageous for children who are often neglected when both parents go out to work, they don't get enough attention paid to them. So there's a great deal that could be done in your community. You live in Montreal? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if you can widen your circle in that city to just have a small group where men and women come together not just men or women, but men and women together. Hmm. I think that's a lovely idea. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because uh, lately there have been a lot of women's groups happening, like sacred women's groups, and more and more, I think, men's groups happening. And I think it's, you know, maybe it's important for us to have those spaces where we can be with our own gender and share our unique experiences and to feel safe in those spaces. But I, I do think that it's maybe even more important to have spaces where we can all come together and, and, and try to create that same feeling of safety and uh, acceptance. I think that's true. I would start small, not more than sort of eight probably. Mm. Because you, when you have eight different people coming from different life experiences, you need space and if you have too many people there isn't enough space to listen yeah yeah oh that's uh that's give me some inspiration thanks for that good yeah 
Yeah, if you have a group um, of 20 or 30 people, you can't do it. You have to keep it small. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Um, so I'm wondering how, what's the best way for people to connect with your message with you? Uh, are you teaching publicly these days? No, but I have a huge website, <laughs> which has got mm. a great deal on it. And it really has everything that one needs to, to know what to do and how to put it into practice in one's life. I give these talks or when I have invitations, like you've invited me, then I give a talk or like the one I gave for Bat Gap. Um, and I love doing that because it actually draws me out to articulate perhaps in verbal form, which is slightly different from when I'm doing my writing because it's a more direct communication and I may get inspiration to say something when I'm talking to you that I might not get when I'm with my piece of paper. But my website has a great deal on it. And if people go to the playlist on the website, which is on the right-hand side, they'll see a whole list of the seminars and the talks and the lectures and the videos that I've done, which are on YouTube. There's a great many of them now and they can listen to those and they can have an education through that on how, the change of consciousness could come about. Mm. Well, I'm so happy that I heard your interview with Rick on Bat Gap. Uh, I wasn't familiar with your work before, but once I started to go through your website, your words really resonated with me. And um, I think it's so important for us to be listening to our elders at this time. Um, and I would say, especially women elders, uh, because I don't think that your, your voices have been heard enough and, uh, you have an incredibly important message from, I think, a very valuable perspective. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been lovely to have been interviewed by you and I hope people will, um, draw something from our conversation. Thanks. Yeah, me, me too. Thank you so much, Anne. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. That was my very nourishing conversation with Anne Baring. Please go to Anne Baring's website, annebaring.com, and you can find links to that in the show notes. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, you can do a few things. You could leave a positive review on iTunes. You could share this podcast with your friends on social media. Or you could become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching where you'll gain access to hours and hours of yoga practice resources to help you develop your own home practice. Well, that's all for now. Until we meet again on The Medicine Path. Take care.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.